Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in World Affairs. This is your host, Christian Peterson. And today I have the good fortune of speaking with General Daniel Bolger about his new book, Why We Lost, A General's Inside Account of the Iraq and Afghanistan Wars, which is put out by Houghton Mifflin Hardcore Publishers. General Bolger, welcome to the show. Well, thanks very much, Christian. Good to be here. Uh, Before we begin, uh, would you like to give our listeners a bit of a, a a short history of your background? Sure. My background, I spent 35 years in the United States Army. Uh, My background was infantry, ground combat, and uh, I completed my service during the current war. I served in Iraq uh, twice, once as a one-star brigadier general commanding on advisory element to the Iraqi armed forces, and then the second time as a two-star general commanding the 1st Cavalry Division in Baghdad. And then I followed that up as a three-star general, lieutenant general, commanding our advisory effort in Afghanistan from 2011 to 13. And following that final um, duty position, I um, retired from the service, and now I teach uh, I teach uh, college at uh, North Carolina State University. How is it making that, that transition? Uh, I mean, not so much in terms of, you know, the obvious differences, but getting back into academia, uh, how have you found that so far? Did that take a lot of adjustment, or was it just like, you know, riding a bicycle, kind of getting back into the groove of dealing with students and that sort of stuff, the day-to-day well, stuff I, of being a professor. Yeah, the, the military is a lot about education and training. And so I, I had some familiarity. And of course, working with people younger than myself is very common since the majority of the armed forces are people 18 to 22. Old guys like me, we're, we're kind of thin on the ground by the, <laughs> by the time you get to my age. Um, so there, it, it's some similarities. I mean, young people are young people. Um, I did have the chance earlier in my military service to teach cadets at West Point for three years from 86 to 89. And so I, you're right. I, I mean, I was familiar with how you teach college. And of course, I went there myself a million years ago, but uh, yeah, not West Point, but college, that is. And uh, and so um, I think, you know, some similarities, but um, but no doubt, I think the best part about it is getting to work with the students and they ask great questions and uh, and they're all eager to learn about, you know, history, which is what I teach. Yeah, that's yeah. I find that too. Uh, teaching my undergraduates, uh, a lot of interest in military history. I mean, we keep getting uh, students at my university wondering why don't we have more military history classes, more military history class, and sometimes the academy doesn't seem to be moving in that direction of teaching more military history, even though there's quite a lot of interest for it. Yeah, no, uh, and I, I credit North Carolina State University. They've consistently offered um, a good range of courses in all aspects of history. Um, I was fortunate to come in right when the previous fellow retired that was teaching the military history. So timing was good, and uh, and I picked it up and done my best with that. And I, I think the students are both getting some out of it. Yeah, it, it, sounds, it sounds great. Um, as far as your book, you, you divide what you uh, your arguments into three sections, and I think it works very well. Um, I think the easiest way to go about it would to start with, uh, with part one and kind of lead up to, you know, the two uh, wars that you talk about. Um, 
you spend the beginning of part one, um, and it's part of this is in the you know the preface in, in the beginning, uh, dealing with the harbingers, um, the kind of what, what the events of the 1990s, starting with the Gulf War, and then you know some of the the attacks on uh, U.S. embassies in Africa and the attack on the USS Cole. I was wondering what you know lessons were learned or not learned, or how it you know either impacted or didn't impact the minds of uh, you know. Of military leadership in this country as they, you know, look toward you know, the year 2000 and beyond? Well, I think there's no doubt that um, it, what happened in the 90s, uh, beginning with our uh, our efforts against Iraq in 1990-91 to liberate Kuwait and, uh, and fight the forces from Hussein's Iraq, um, that's really where the United States in a major way put forces into the into that region. We had a long involvement there, of course, going back, uh, you know, decades, but uh, but that's where we made a, ma- a major entry. And of course, we had a very successful war to liberate Kuwait, um, you know, from a military standpoint, defeated Saddam Hussein's army and air force and, and uh, successfully freed Kuwait and re- returned it to the control of the Emir and, and the people of Kuwait. But the um, but it did leave a lot of questions, and among those were the questions in the minds of our enemies. In the case of the Iraqis, they... Uh, they clearly wondered, you know, what they'd done wrong, what they would do different if they had to fight us the next time. And then there were also the, the Saudis, the people in Saudi Arabia, the Saudi Arabian people. Um, among them, a contractor named Osama bin Laden, who was very frustrated with the fact that a large number of Westerners, led by the Americans in force, you know, almost a million people by the time he added in all the contractors and everybody else that came in 1991, that had entered Saudi Arabia, that were clearly... Uh, almost all of them not believers, not Muslims, and Saudi Arabia, of course, is the centerpiece of the Islamic religion. You know, the great cities of Mecca and Medina that were central to the story of the Prophet Muhammad and to that um, to that faith. And so, um, Bin Laden was outraged that the Saudi um, government, you know, the, the king, allowed us in uh, to liberate Kuwait to defend Saudi Arabia, and and he that's what it was a formative event for him. Um, coupled with his previous experience fighting the Russians in Afghanistan, those two things together encouraged him to uh, to declare war against the United States. And and the things you've talked about were his attempts in the 1990s to basically prosecute that war. In 1998, he attacked our embassies in Kenya and Tanzania with um, with some effect. I mean, killed dozens of people and a lot of local people, almost hundreds of local people. And then. Um, and then compounded that in October 2000 when he attacked the USS Cole, uh, a guided missile destroyer that was um, taken on fuel in the port of Aden, which is uh, near the uh, southern end of the Red Sea. And uh, he made those, you know, his teams made those attacks and, and at the same time staged for what we would know as the 9-11, September 11, 2001, airliner attacks. They were preparing all these. And that was Bin Laden's way. His, his goal of Bin Laden and Al-Qaeda, which is... Arabic for the base or the foundation. His goal was essentially to draw the United States into Afghanistan into a long, indecisive war, a stalemated war, and cause us to uh, to experience um, an internal breakup, as that was his view of what had happened to the Soviet Union. In the mind of bin Laden, that reflected divine intervention on behalf of, of the believers of Islam. Uh, but there was certainly no doubt that, that it had an effect um, in, in world politics that led to uh, problems within the Soviet Union. It was certainly not the only cause of the Soviet Union's demise, but it, it was a factor. Sure, and it's it's a nice segue into uh, my next question. Um, 
you you make the point very well that uh, Osama bin Laden did not think Americans, you know, could take casualties. Um, that they wanted to get them into a bleeding war that would, you know, weaken weaken them. And kind of, you know, the nine eleven tax were carried out for that. In your estimation, and, and you obviously address this in the book, you know, and you can use this, I think, as a, a platform to kind of we can begin to go through your larger arguments about what went right and what went wrong with the U.S. invasion uh, of Afghanistan as part of its larger effort to, you know, take out the Taliban and, you know, take out Al Qaeda as part of, you know, this uh, George Bush's, you know, global war on terrorism. Uh, how do you think, you know, like I said, what went right and what went wrong uh, with, you know, the U.S. Uh, initial focus on Afghanistan after 9-11? Well, it's interesting that when after 9-11 occurred, the initial discussions within our government, you know, the, the various intelligence and law enforcement sources came in and uh, and tried to identify who had done it. It was suspected right away it was al-Qaeda. The, um, the Central Intelligence Agency, Military Intelligence Services, had been tracking them and knew that they were behind the coal attack and the embassy attacks in Africa. Um, and they had certainly you know, followed Osama bin Laden. There had even been an attempt in 98 using cruise missiles to knock out his camps in Afghanistan and, and to even try and get him that was unsuccessful, although mm-hmm. some damage was done to the camps. Um, so there was a feeling right away that al-Qaeda was behind it, not a feeling, a thought, you know, a pretty clear um, a pretty clear set of facts that led the intel services to say, yeah, this is the guy who did it. But almost immediately, there was also discussion in the U.S. government of, of, you know, okay, what else is behind this? And it led President Bush very early on, in fact, on the, the night of September 11th, to talk in terms of a military operation versus law enforcement or intelligence effort that would have, uh, the Clinton administration certainly did military operations. So did President Bush's father, the first President Bush, George H.W. Bush. But they preferred to use more of a mix of law enforcement, intel work, working with allies, and not, you know, declare war, if you will. In the case of Bush, though, he, he the younger Bush, President Bush, uh, President uh, number 43 Bush, George W. Bush, he, he and his administration said, no, we're going to treat this as a military event. And the night of the attack, when he addressed the nation, he said, we're going we're gonna to make no distinction between the terrorists and those who harbor them. That was an important point, because up until then, we had focused on al-Qaeda, which was the guys who attacked us, and, and you know, then on September 11th, obviously. But, um, but they're a terror, they were a network of terrorists, and, and what do we mean when we say that? They're, they're individuals salted around places in Afghanistan. They had some camps and things, but we shouldn't think of it. You know, they're not running the equivalent of Marine boot camp at Camp Lejeune with thousands of people going through training. It was it was individuals. It was almost like a, um, you know, a master apprentice system, you know. And that was the way they were teaching people how to do bombings and how to, you know, hijack aircraft and all that kind of thing. There's small numbers of people, highly selected, working in secret. And um, to get at that kind of enemy was really, really hard. And so when President Bush turned to the military and said, what can you do about this? The U.S. military, I think, correctly came back and said, we're not very good at manhunting. You know, that's not really what we do. If you want that, you need the FBI or you need police. You know, they are good at finding criminals. We don't do that very well. But if you need us to knock out one of these state-supporting countries, well, now you've come to the right place. <laughs> and in the case of the United States military, um, we didn't we didn't specifically have plans for Afghanistan, but we certainly um, 
you know, we'd made plans for how we might go in and knock out a country or something like that. And we, and we had done it before. We'd done it in 1991 with the Iraqis. We'd done it in Kosovo with the Serbians in 1999. We had taken over Haiti in 1994. So, I mean, we had, we had this ability to go somewhere and do that. And, and that was the initial state of the planning. You know, was what could the military do right away to avenge 9/11 and set things up so that perhaps these these terrorists of Al Qaeda could be could be rounded up and killed, captured, tried, whatever it was they decided to do. But clearly, a strong military bent right from the start. And one other thing I'd, I'd highlight that you mentioned, very very important concept, is this idea of global war on terrorism. Global war on terrorism is a is a generic thing. You know, it's, terrorism is a tactic used by people, used by enemies in this case that, that don't have conventional militaries that want to strike against countries that are more powerful or distant for political purposes. You know, it, it's a form of warfare, but it, in that regard, it's it's another tool in the in the capabilities that some some entities would use. Um, when Bush said global war on terrorism, it's noteworthy that he did not identify the enemy. It was understood to be al-Qaeda, but it was left a little bit wide open. I mean, there are many terrorist groups in the world. Uh, many of them have nothing to do with Islam, or if they have something to do with Islam, they have nothing to do with al-Qaeda. And a good number of them have only local interests, you know, I mean, and we can think of some of the, the well-known ones, you know, Hezbollah that operates out of Lebanon against Israel, or um or the Irish, old Irish Republican Army that used to work in Northern Ireland against the British. I mean, these are these are terrorist groups, but they're not. They're, they have no affiliation with like an international group that that had strong fundamentalist Islamic beliefs, like Al Qaeda. Yeah, I mean, it's it's an interesting point you make about it, one of the ideas you keep coming back to throughout the book, and certainly in uh, the U.S. military operations in Afghanistan, is the question of who's the enemy, and you know what is what's our goal? Is it you know who are we fighting? How are we going to achieve victory? I mean. What your analysis opens up throughout the book is kind of that, I mean, I don't even know where to find it, the line between, you know, effective, you know, war making to make the world safer versus getting drawn into the, the task of nation building. Um, and that's something yeah. that, I th- that, I, that I think has to, you know, you, you, you grapple with it in, uh, in the book, especially when you go over how Tommy Franks planned the uh, Operation in, Enduring Freedom, which starts as, you know, Operation Infinite Justice, I believe. Uh, yes, that was the actual original code name. Um, and the military gets code names two different ways. There's there's a computer generated list that are they're not really nonsense words, but they're essentially just assigned code names. The one that most many people have heard that's very famous from history was Operation Overlord, the D Day invasion. Yes, um, you know, and that's one people have heard of before, but. Um, these code names really are usually come off a list. In the old days, it used to be typed up, and then nowadays it's generated by computer. And they'll have a pro word. Nowadays, the way the pro word will usually say what region it's set in. So there had been previous uh, operations in Afghanistan. One was called Infinite Reach, which was uh, a cruise missile strike program that had been planned and, and done actually in '98. So Infinite Justice was in that series. It was just you know the next one on the list, the word. <laughs> well, when they planned it. That this sort of got to a key point here. So they say, okay, we're going to do Operation Infinite Justice. And, and for those who are interested, there's actually a whole footnote about what I'm about to say in the, uh, in the 9-11 Commission report that explains all this. So this is not some secret thing you can't read about, you know, except in the bowels of the Internet. It's, it's readily available. But what's interesting is when they said, okay, we're going to call this Infinite Justice, 
our allies in the region, the Pakistanis, the, uh, the Saudis, uh, the Emiratis and the United Arab Emirates, places we were going to stage forces, these are primarily Islamic countries, of course, they said, oh, wait a minute, you know, that, that's a term that, you know, our people, when they hear that, and it gets translated into our language, you know, you're basically taking the role of God here. You know, yeah, we know you're a superpower, but you're not that strong. <laughs> and so, um, so we came out, that's where the second way you can generate a military code word, and that is somebody just says, hey, we want a different word. And, and so the, instead they came up with the idea of enduring freedom, and that was the code word, the code name then used for the, uh, for the attacks into Afghanistan, and, and still is being used. In fact, that operation's just wrapping up uh, now in December 2014, the combat operations, it's still called enduring freedom. That's true. And I, I still, I'm trying to, yeah, I read your book and I go back and I, and I, you know, live through it. I'm trying to get a sense of if the, if Bush or the military, the military, you, you, you seem to, you, you've paid very, very well, but if they knew when this would end, what would be, you know, the victory in Afghanistan? Would it be, you know, Al Qaeda has gone and then you, and then you leave the troops out and let the Afghanistan uh, people build their own country. I mean, at what point, uh, it seems to be some people, some people made the argument that the Bush administration could have gotten the troops out relatively quickly. Um, I, I guess what I'm getting at is at the end of the day, do you think they really, people knew what they were getting into when, uh, you know, after the special forces, you know, you know, go in and then eventually the troop levels are raised? Well, I don't, I don't think they knew what they were getting into. If nothing else, they should have read Osama bin Laden's fatwa because he said, my goal is to make a big enough attack on the Americans to cause them to commit a bunch of troops to Afghanistan. Um, so in a way, we were doing exactly what our enemy had wanted us to do. Um, we, we, chose a, uh, we chose a method of attack that was um, unusual. I mean, we used special operations forces, intel, working with local militias, the Northern Alliance most notably, but some other local militias as well. Our, our, our very strong air power coming off aircraft carriers, coming off the Air Force bases around the world, including some in the United States that flew all the way from the U.S. to do the missions, um, you know, using aerial tanking and all that stuff, you know, guided by, by um, very high-precision, um, you know, overhead satellites and stuff like that so we could strike exactly where we wanted. I mean, it was a capability only the United States had. And I don't think bin Laden and his people, and certainly the Taliban, who were his supporters, Mullah Omar and the Taliban government of Afghanistan, I don't think they had any idea that we could mount something like that so quickly. And it even surprised us how quickly it went and how successful it was. But in a way, that sort of created the problem. We we had originally, as you pointed out, General Tommy Franks, who was the, the overall U.S. commander for that phase of the war, he had, he had thought, okay, well, it's going to take a while to take these guys down, and then when we take them down, we'll turn it over to somebody, the U.N., local government, whatever, and we'll pull out and get ready for the next phase, because Bush had said it's global war on terrorism. And, you know, al-Qaeda was one phase, but who else was on the chart? There were already people talking about the Iraqis. There was discussion what to do about Iran, you know. It's, at one point during the State of the Union message, you know, too, President Bush even inserted North Korea into that list. So, I mean, the, the thought among the military was, hey, get this done, do it as quickly as you can, and, and pull everybody out to get ready for the next phase, you know, the next, because it, it was unclear where we were going to go next, although there were a bunch of options. But because we were so successful, the, the Afghans, of course, said, hey, we need help setting up our government. Our European allies, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO, had for the first time in their history invoked Article 5. That's the article that says an attack on one member is an attack on all. 
Um, people forget this, but NATO actually sent some aircraft over to, to support the United States in patrolling our skies after 9-11. They sent some, some aircraft. The Canadians did as well because we have a bilateral treaty with them um, for the defense of North America. And um, and so there were a lot of allies saying, hey, well, you know, now we've, we've, you've done a good knockout in the first round with a little bit of allied help. We'd like to stay and help build this government. You know, we would like your support. And so the U.S. started to back into, as you coined it, and that's correct, nation building. You know, essentially, okay, we've knocked out the Taliban. Now let's help these Afghans get their country on their feet. What we didn't think through was what will be the effect of having thousands of non-Afghans, thousands of Westerners, thousands of non-Muslims in that country? What would be the effect out in the villages when word got around? You know, how would that play out? And what would happen with the Taliban remnants out there? Well, as it turned out, that was a recruiting tool because they said, mm-hmm. they said, hey, you know, the, the infidels are here to take our country. Let's rally around them. And the one thing that all Afghans can agree on, they don't agree on much, but they sure don't like outsiders trying to take over their country. That's true. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really important point. Um, a couple other uh, questions I have related to the initial are the first few years of U.S. and Afghanistan has to deal with uh, an episode or not an episode, maybe not the right word, but an incident that I don't think many of our readers would know about. But you devote considerable attention in the book called the Kuala E. Jengi uh, uprising that, that had to do with the prison right. revolt. Kuala prison. Yes, uh, I Um, think that would, uh, you know, something I haven't read about that widely in the literature, uh, but I think you do a great job describing it to the general reader. Yeah, well, it's quite interesting. It happened early in the war. It happened in November. You know, we 9-11 occurred here September 11th. We're by October 7th. We're operating in Afghanistan fighting them. And then in November, just around Thanksgiving time, uh, we had we had taken the capital of Kabul. We were marching on the rest of the country, you know, mainly in the south, which is where the Taliban originated. The Afghanistan is made up of a bunch of different ethnic groups, but the, the largest one by number is the Pashtuns. They're maybe about 40 percent or so of the country, and they live in the south and the east. So that's where the Taliban was strong. They were strong among the Pashtuns. Um, our allies from the Northern Alliance were primarily people from two other ethnic groups, the Tajiks and the Uzbeks. And as we took Pashtun captives, uh, we had to put them somewhere. We had only a few small special forces teams, and of course, they can't stop and guard these guys because they're out on operations. And um, the Air Force, who's flying missions and the Navy off the carriers and all that, well, you know, you can't really guard them with planes. And so the Northern Alliance says, we'll, we'll take care of these prisoners. We'll watch them for you. And they, they centralized them in a place up in Northern Iraq called Kalajangi. And to an American, it would look like a, it's a big... Um, Fort. It looks like Fort McHenry in Baltimore or, or you know, Fort Sumter in Charleston. It's an old style fort just like that, like almost like a castle. And they put these guys in there. But what they didn't think through was what would happen when you put all these people in there? Because uh, talk about not thinking things through. College Engine, before it was a prisoner camp, was a was an arms depot. And they, the Afghans thought it through so poorly that the arms were still in there. And they put the prisoners <laughs> in on top of the arms. Incredible. Now, you know, we laugh about that. We say, yeah, crazy. But in their mind, they, they were trying very quickly to improvise. I mean, they were worried about taking over the rest of the country. They were worried about keeping up with the American Air Force, all this other stuff. So it was done as an afterthought. And at that point, the U.S. said, hey, we better send some guys into this prison and asking these people if they know where Bin Laden was. I mean, that's how that's how weak our intelligence was on al-Qaeda at the time. We actually sent people into the prison to sort of, you know, do a survey, you know, almost like a 
Oprah show or something, go around with a microphone. Who here has ever met Ozama Bin Laden? And I mean, it, was, it wasn't quite that amateurish, but it was really weak compared to how we would do it later. And so when our people went into the prison, um, the prisoners revolted. I mean, when they saw the Americans, they, they reacted strongly, they grabbed the weapons, and they, there was an uprising. And us and the members of the Northern Alliance, using U.S. air power, had to put that uprising down. It's noteworthy because the first American killed in, in the Afghan operation was killed at College Angie. It's a fellow named uh, Mike Spann. He was a uh, Central Intelligence Agency officer, a former Marine. He was the first American killed in, this, in the military side of this war in Afghanistan. And, uh, and he was killed during the uprising, which was put down using U.S. airstrikes and all that. And the prisoners were eventually properly processed. There, some of them actually went to Guantanamo, which is still being used as a... Uh, a today. Yes. Um, yeah, I didn't, I didn't know much about, about this, this uh, moment of the war at all before I read your book. So I was, it was very interesting to read. And another uh, issue that I think our listeners would uh, very much benefit from you weighing in on is the debate about whether the U S government and military um, let Osama bin Laden get away Um when it had oh, yeah. him surrounded at Tora Bora or in that, you know, as, as the, as the Taliban fled into our you know, members of Al Qaeda fled into Pakistan. Uh, what's your uh, analysis of that debate about whether he was lost or not? Well, as, as mentioned at the prison, we were going in there trying, who's seen bin Laden. I mean, bin Laden was on the run as soon as the airstrike started and the, um, the region, the border between Afghanistan and Pakistan is very mountainous. The Hindu Kush mountains there second highest range in the world after the Himalayas. I mean, very, very tough terrain. And of course, now it's November, December, so the weather's bad. You've got snow in the passes. You've got uh, howling winds. Very difficult to get aircraft in. Even our all-weather our, our jets have trouble getting into that type of, of uh, environment to, to drop bombs or to look for people using cameras and stuff. So very tough weather. And they're, and they're moving on foot. They're moving with, with donkeys and small vehicles, you know, Toyota pickup trucks trying to get across the border into Pakistan, which they hope will be safe for them. Um, and this place that you described, Tora Bora, sometimes called the White Mountains, it was a complex that bin Laden had built uh, for the um, for the Afghan Mujahideen, for the fighters against the Soviets in the war in the 1980s. He'd, that's where he'd first gotten his experience, you know, combat experience was was helping them as, as as a contractor, essentially building building tunnels, so he knew about this, and he and his key lieutenants went there as soon as the American airstrike started and, and pulled up, uh, planning to cross the border. And so the United States gets in information, some from the prisoners of Kalajangi, some from other means, and figures out that Osama bin Laden's probably in this Tor Bor region. But that but that would be the equivalent of saying that you know, okay, a guy we're looking for is in the Rocky Mountains. You know, I mean, it's you know, it's a big area. It is, it is very bad terrain, horrible weather, and the United States didn't have that many troops at the time. We had a Marine unit that had just come in into southern Iraq. We had a small Army unit that uh, did help with up Kuala Jangi, but that was uh, staging out of the north and out of Pakistan. But I'd, I'd say as far as troops we could put on the ground, maybe a couple thousand, and that's really stretching it, and that would have left everything else unprotected. And there were ongoing fights going with the remainders of the Taliban in the south and east. But we could have scraped up some troops. The problem is that terrain there is so bad, um, you would need tens of thousands of troops to, to cover that border and seal it if you, could, if you could even do it. And even then, at night, in bad weather, they might flip through between. 
So, because uh, the border, it's not as if there's a border fence. There's no Berlin Wall or anything like that around the border. It's totally open. And all there are some little guard checks on the Afghan side and, and on the Pakistan side. So um, we thought using local militiamen, some of our special forces, some of our CIA guys, we, we, we think we might have cornered Bin Laden. There was a whole debate about, you know, was he there? Was he not there? Then, you know, was he wounded? Was he killed? All that. We didn't really know. And, and it took, you know, his trail went cold after that for quite a while. You know, we get an occasional tape or something. But, but there was a whole thought. And within about a year or two, it had co- coalesced that, well, he was there, but because we didn't seal the border, we didn't get him. But, but at the time, we weren't really sure he was there. You know, that was, that was hindsight that, that finally was able to put everything together and say, yeah, he probably wasn't there, and yeah, he probably escaped. Um, but I think one important point we should make is that the damage done to al-Qaeda when they lost their, their camps and they lost their, their benefactors in the Taliban that owned the state, they lost essentially their launching pad when they lost that. Al-Qaeda under bin Laden never really mounted another attack. Elements that claim the name of al-Qaeda, elements that, that do things in the spirit of al-Qaeda, they're certainly out there, and they've been active. I mean, the 7-7 attacks in July of, of um, 2005 of Great Britain, the attacks in Spain in 2004 against the trains in Madrid, the attacks in Bali, um, in Indonesia. I mean, these are things by al-Qaeda affiliates or al-Qaeda wannabes, whatever you want to call it. I mean, even the Tsarnaev brothers at the Boston Marathon make reference to, uh, to inspiration from al-Qaeda. But inspired by is not the same thing as run by. Uh, the reality was that Bin Laden, you know, once once we knocked out um, once we knocked out the Taliban and ran him out of the country, he never really got reestablished as the as the leader of a centralized Al Qaeda. They never mounted any other major operations. And then, as we know, about ten years after that, in, in May of 2011, our special forces got him in Pakistan. Yes, I mean, that, that, that's it's uh, an interesting uh, an interesting take. It's one uh, I don't. I mean, I hear it in some places, but a lot of people are like, "Oh, it was a missed moment because we dropped the ball and we started looking." And eventually, the, the argument goes that we uh, started paying too much attention to Iraq, which I think is is a good segue into the uh, the way you transitioned to part from part one to part two of your book uh, with uh, the focus on Iraq. Um, uh, my question is: yeah, We did indeed transfer to our attention to Iraq. That's quite true. Yes, um, I mean, leaving aside, I mean, you can weigh in if if you want about whether the U.S. should have invaded Iraq or not. But every time I read about accounts of the U.S. preparing for the war, it it often comes back to the name Don Rumsfeld um, and how mm-hmm. he kind of influenced the American approach to the war, uh, the way that the invasion was carried out. Um, I guess my question is, you know, how, how did you, you know, what was your understanding or view of how Rumsfeld handled uh, the invasion and the actual plan as it was carried out? Uh, well, there's an old, there's an old line they often blame us guys in uniform, especially us generals, say, well, you know, generals are always willing to fight the last war. When you refer to Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld, in a way, he was willing to fight the last war, too, in Iraq. But the last war he was willing to fight was what he'd seen in Afghanistan. That that highly unusual combination of local forces, special ops units, intel agencies, air power, um, encouraged Secretary Rumsfeld to believe that the right way to go into Iraq was with the smallest possible armed force you could use. Now, the United States at, at, at 9-11, you know, I mentioned we didn't really have a specific, you know, big-time plan for Afghanistan. We had plans for, like, cruise missile strikes and all that that we've been running. But that was not one of the countries we normally plan to fight in or fight against. Uh, 
But there were two countries in the world that we had planned since the early 90s that we might have to fight in. One of them is kind of obvious, and that's Korea because of the North-South Korea split. And if you'll remember in the 90s, there was all kinds of problems with the North Koreans with nuclear weapons and all this kind of stuff. So so the possibility of a war on the Korean Peninsula at that time was one of the two major contingencies the U.S. prepared for. The other one was a renewed fight in in Iraq, Kuwait area. You know, the thought that Saddam may regroup his army and march south into Kuwait again. And so when, when the planners in the military you know, were told, hey, we, I think we're going to have to do something against Iraq. Well, they were very happy because if nothing else, they had a plan for that. We'd rehearsed it. We practiced it. We'd even run through it once in 1991. But the 1991 plan, you know, was a half a million Americans. And back to Secretary Rumsfeld, he said, oh, you don't need that many. Look, we just took down Iraq with a couple hundred guys on horseback with radios talking to the Air, Air Force. You know, figure out a way to do this with a lot less people. Okay, well, you know, here we get a split because you can knock out the the Iraqi armed forces pretty quickly. Uh, they they aren't that they weren't that competent, and our guys fight better, and we have a lot more firepower and intel and all that. So you know, we're we're much better than them in a qualitative sense. What they didn't think through is the fact that if you don't send in enough Americans, um, you don't really control the country. You don't really get out to all the corners of the country, and somebody's going to fill that power vacuum. And we didn't think through who that somebody might be. Now, I will credit one person. I mentioned him in the book. He has been mentioned. And this poor guy gets gets beat up a lot because of his tenure as the, the secretary for the Veterans Administration, and that's General Retired Rick Shinseki. He was the chief of staff of the Army at the time of the Iraq invasion. And in testimony to Congress, when he was pressed, he didn't offer it, but when he was pressed, somebody said, well, you know, what's it really going to take to uh, control to control Iraq? And he said several hundred thousand troops. And Rumsfeld and Secretary uh, Rumsfeld's uh, deputy, Paul Wolfowitz at the Pentagon, they both they both threw water on that. They said, no way. No, this guy's way out of line. Well, turn out General Shinseki, who who'd fought and been badly wounded in Vietnam, who'd served in the Balkans with our peacekeeping forces. He was just about right on target. And we eventually did have to build up to that large force. But at the time we did, there was a full-scale insurgency underway in Iraq. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to belabor the point, but especially when you look back at it now and you see Rumsfeld and Wolfowitz, too, for that matter. It was the just the kind of, I don't want how should I put this, arrogance and contempt for that kind of argument. I mean, Wolfowitz, I remember one in an interview when someone asked him if the United States was going to have to have hundreds of thousands of troops. He literally looked at the interviewer like she was the stupidest person on the planet um, for even raising the point. Um, In retrospect, as you said, it was completely appropriate line of questioning and concern uh, to have. Yeah, well, he he actually thought we'd be greeted as liberators. And, And we were in some regions, but the majority of the country did not. Uh, interacted not greet us as liberators. Uh, the Kurds were suspicious because they felt like we hadn't done enough to help them in 1991. The Shia Arabs in the South were highly suspicious because they felt like we'd encouraged them to revolt in 1991 and then gave them no support at all. So you go into a country where a good a good chunk of the population, about two-thirds of the population, suspicious, and one-third, the Sunni Arabs who supported Saddam, they're active enemies. And that's the world you're going into. This is not you know, the liberation of France in 1944 by any means. No, not at all. Um, and it raises a good point. I think it's a good segue uh, into uh, uh, Paul Bremer's uh, decision to issue order yeah. number one. Um, in retrospect, is that a bad idea? Is it a good idea at the time? I mean, in, how would you, how do you evaluate that moment? And um, 
well, not not thought through very well. There was, you know, General Tommy Franks was still the overall commander for the region. He had not thought through the aftermath, he and his people, but of course the commander's always responsible, and I know that because it's certainly been me in some of these operations. Um, hadn't thought through the aftermath in Afghanistan, but got over with that because the Taliban fled, Bin Laden fled, and things quieted down there. In, in the case of Iraq, they also had not thought through very well. Well, what happens if we're wildly successful and we march to Baghdad and Saddam's the post, then what? Well, there was sort of this vague, you know, well, the UN will come in. Well, maybe some allies will come in. Well, maybe some, some Iraqis will step forward and run their government, but it was not well thought out. There was actually a retired um, lieutenant general named Jake Garner who'd been involved with the Kurds in 91, you know, helping do relief operations. Yeah. And he, he ran a brief organization under the Department of Defense that was supposed to handle reconstruction. But as you mentioned, he was deposed by um, Ambassador Jerry Bremer, who had, who had a, a strong background in Europe. He, he'd worked in the Netherlands and all that, but really was not an Arabist, didn't know the region very well, and came in with a preconceived notion, um, not necessarily a bad historical analogy, but not appropriate. He, he remembered that in World War II, when the United States took over Germany in 1945 after Hitler shot himself and the Germans surrendered, he remembered that the United States had done something called denazification, where basically all the senior members of the SS and the Gestapo and the Nazi party were, were all barred from, from being government. In fact, in many cases, were investigated, rounded up, tried at places like Nuremberg. He saw a similar pattern at work in, Afghanistan, in Iraq, but you know that's, a, that's an analogy, but he didn't think through the ramifications because in Iraq, everybody who was an officer in the army, a school teacher, a person who ran the uh, the local power station, pretty much anybody who was anybody with an education was a member of the Baptist Party. So when you disband the army and the police and the intel services and the Baptist Party, you basically kicked out all the people who run the country for good or for ill. Yeah. And you've given these people every incentive in the world to now turn against the occupation authorities because you, you, you essentially disenfranchised them. And in many cases, these are people who were, who were figuring, oh, well, you know, they'll turn to us to run the country now. Um, you know, so uh, probably the right idea in a moral sense, you know, get these evil Baptist guys out of here, but not thought through in a practical sense. Um, a person who knew the region better would have, would have warned Ambassador Bremer, hey, you, you're, you're, you're going too far down. You probably need to get rid of the big guns, you know, the guys around Saddam, but the, the lesser fry, you need to be more reasonable about it. Uh, we weren't. And as a result, these people in many cases were Sunni Arabs, so they were already upset that the Shia majority was going to take over the government after there'd be an election. And now, you know, they're disenfranchised. They lose their jobs. And worse, the other people didn't know how to run all this stuff. So you got nobody to run the ministries and everything, you know, everything in Ba'athist um, Iraq it was a socialist country, so it's centrally administered. So your power system breaks down, your fuel system, both to export and to even have fuel within your country. So you have the second largest oil reserves in the world, and people can't get, get fuel for their generators or cars. I mean, True. it's just crazy. And you need things like garbage collection. I mean, no, there was none. Yeah, until, <laughs> I know. You know, I mean, we had to rebuild all that. Yeah. And then, of course, when there's no garbage collection, it's more than an eyesore. I mean, there's there's health implications. Mm -hmm. I mean, that climate over there is, is immensely hot and humid along the rivers. So every type of disease you can imagine begins to propagate. And, uh, you know, in, in our military, again, not with enough people because Rumsfeld said, oh, send in a light footprint. Our military is trying to figure out how to sort all this out and, and do it in a way that they haven't really thought through. You know, we got we've got tanks. We've got. Uh, jet fighters, those aren't really good at getting rid of garbage. Yeah, true. Um, 
Yeah, and you also speaking of not of not thinking it through, you've got some interesting insights on that whole USS Abraham Lincoln and the mission accomplished sign that's become kind of, you know, even in pop culture, it's made reference to quite a bit about how that came about. Uh, I was wondering if you could say oh, a few yeah. words about that. Yeah, yeah. Again, one of these things, you know, one of the things I try to do in the book is is talk about things people think they know about the war that you really that really aren't quite what you think. So the USS Abraham Lincoln, U.S. aircraft carrier had actually done one of the longest deployments in modern U.S. naval history. The normal Navy deployment at that time was six months. The Lincoln had been out for almost nine. They'd, they'd sent strikes in to help in Afghanistan. They did the strikes to help in, in, uh, in Iraq. And so the battle group was coming home. And the sailors put up a sign on the, bri- uh, on the bridge, you know, on the island of the carrier that said, Mission Accomplished. They were talking about the Lincoln's mission and the battle group mission. When Bush's people found out about it, now Bush, of course, former fighter pilot from the Air National Guard during Vietnam era and stuff, you know, he knew how to fly a plane and, you know, and all that. So they put him in a flight suit and put him in a Navy jet, and he's going to land on the carrier, which is very exciting, I'm sure. But they saw this sign up there, and his people were like, yeah, that's good. That's, you know, leave it up there. It looks good. You know, in retrospect, I mean, it became a punchline because, the president, in his speech, if you read his speech, he thanks the troops, which is great, but particularly thanks the sailors of the Lincoln Battle Group, also great. He says in there, hey, the first bat- the first fight, you know, the, the conventional fight, the fight to seize Baghdad is over, but the war continues. We've got a lot of work to do. It's going to be a long war. Nobody heard that part. All they saw was the image of him in front of a sign that said, mission accomplished, and the part where he said the fight is over. And, uh, and, you know, boy, he paid for that politically oh, for years. And as you said, it still is. I mean, I can remember Keith Olbermann every night would say, you know, X number of days since mission accomplishment, you know, and, and uh, you know, I think everybody in America had heard that. Oh, yeah, that, that goofy uh, television show that people either love or hated, Arrested Development, they made a field day yes. making, ref- making references to that moment of the war. Uh, well, I, and I think what it gets at, this is something that's, that's noteworthy. You know, the United States is a country that can sell you either Pepsi or Coke, which are basically sugared soft drinks, and convince you they're totally different products. And if you <laughs> like one, you can't like the other. I mean, we can sell you almost anything. And yet we did a terrible job, you know, quote, selling the story, the, the ideas behind this war. We're, we're not very good at propaganda. You know, we're real good at selling products. But when it comes to explaining why our government does what it does, we have a lot of ham-handed images like what, what we've just talked about here. We sure. don't think it through very well. It's a good point. Um, uh, before we get to the surge, uh, another point on your book I found interesting is when you took on the issues of WMDs in Iraq. Um, and you make an yeah. argument that not, doesn't always get emphasized in the books I've read about the war. Uh, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what you write about WMDs. Yeah. Well, I, I felt... I felt um, Validated by the New York Times, who who dug into some of the same stuff I'd saw seen in theater when working out work with my folks, and that is that um, the Iraqis had a chemical capability. They had a little bit of nuclear research and a little bit of bio research, but they had a chemical capability that they used on their own people. They used it on the Iranians, and they had the residual rounds. But the whole Iraqi industrial base was was in was in ruins basically after the first go around with them in 1991. And they weren't really able to rebuild it for a lot of reasons in the nineties. In some cases they didn't choose to. Um, so those weapons were still out there and, and had to be rounded up and, and picked up and, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, there was a tendency because we did not find, you know, I think there were people thought they were going to find like a, um, almost like something out of a James Bond movie where there's <laughs> this underground lair with all these lined up missiles with, you know, with a, 
hazmat warning on the on the nose cone, and they'd be all, you know, you'd be dialed in for New York and Paris and all that. Nothing like that was there. It was very ramshackle, but so was all of Iraq. So was their army. So was their navy. So, I mean, their air force, they were burying planes in the desert rather than flying against our air force. And so um, a residual chemical capability was there. How quickly could he reconstitute it? We don't know, but it, but it would be wrong to say, hey, they had nothing. There were no WMDs. And, and to the credit of the reporters at the New York Times, they laid this out really well this summer. You know, again, it, it took them a while to get access to all the, the sources that told them that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, for U.S. domestic political reasons, there were a lot of people who, who wanted to say, hey, you told us there were WMDs, you being Bush. You told us there were WMDs, there weren't any, therefore you lied and all that. But in theater, we always knew they had something. It just wasn't the, the high degree that we had thought there might be going in. Sure. Um, yeah, I, I, I was going to raise the issue of the surge, but even before we get there, I think it's important that you describe. Um, I mean, we'll, we'll, I mean, you can you can comment on it if you want. We, there's horrific violence, uh, you know, goes into Iraq, 2004, 2005, 2006, uh, bombings, oh, yeah. sacred Shia mosques, the Al Skari uh, in uh, Samarra, right. Samarra. Uh, Yes. I mean, and eventually what happens is, you know, you get the, the political pressure, the 2006 elections, and then you see uh, uh, what you refer to in the book uh, as Sawa, uh, the Sunni awakening. And you begin to see right. Sunnis react and arm themselves uh, against uh, Al-Qaeda um, and begin to not 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 all Sunnis, of course, but you begin to see many Sunnis taking up the war effort. Um and that's obviously, I think, uh, a very important moment in the war. And I was wondering if you could uh, tell our listeners more yeah, about absolutely, that. Absolutely pivotal. Um, and this happened, I think, partially because what Iraq, again, split between three major groups. Kurdish, who are, who are Islamic but are not Arab, and then two Arab groups, uh, a minority that's Sunni Arab, a majority that's Shia Arab, two different sects of Islam, the two primary sects. Uh, not exact analog, but think of it as like Catholic, Protestant, or whatever in, in the Christian world. Um, but those two sects, the Sunnis, who are the minority, had been the core of the insurgency. They they were the ones that Saddam had favored. He was a Sunni Arab. He had favored them. With him out, they are the outs now. And as we talked about, Bremer and others had, had basically put him on the outs and kicked him out of all the, the key positions of influence and, and such. So they're the enemy to the American um the American occupation forces and also to the uh, to the new regime in Baghdad that's headed by the Shia. Well, Al-Qaeda thought, you know, hey, we are also Sunni Arabs. We'll be your, your organizers. You guys are a bunch of disparate groups, various tribes and clans and families. We'll take charge and we'll run the show for you because we know what's best for you. And they went out in these rural villages out in, out in uh, the farmlands of western and northern Iraq and, uh, and began imposing things that were very, very strict Sharia law. The average sheikh out there likes to race horses. He likes to buy an occasional uh, nip of uh, booze from the Christians in Baghdad. He he likes to bet on things. He likes to smoke cigarettes. And these guys were out ruling all of this out. Moreover, a lot of them have daughters who they want to send uh, places like Jordan and such to be educated. No, no, no. According to al-Qaeda, you don't educate women at all. You keep them barefoot and pregnant. Well, these sheikhs who had been, you know, they were the descendants of people who had ruled these regions for for centuries, They're, they were essentially said, hey, you you are imposing on, on our authority and our local rule. We've had enough of this. We may not care much for the regime in Baghdad, but these Americans here who are here right now, 
we might cut a deal with them temporarily to fight you because you are in our villages causing day-to-day trouble and killing us and, and chopping off hands and doing all that kind of stuff. We'll make, we might make a pact with these infidels to, to deal with you. And that became the awakening, the Sawa. And awakening, Sawa is an interesting word. We could translate it into English as Sunni awakening or whatever, but it, the best the best way to translate it would essentially be a rude awakening, like, you know, splashing cold water in your face. Like, boy, we finally woke up, you know, and realized we were doing something crazy dealing with Al-Qaeda. We need to get in with somebody else. Yeah. And, that's, and that, and, by the way, started in 05. You know, it did not start with the surge in, in 07. That started in 05. Oh, absolutely. The first groups began to come in. Yes, I, I, I agree. Um, and what ends up happening is you begin to, you, you know, the Sunnis take up, um, you know, take it up against or take up arms against Al Qaeda, and then you know when when the idea of the 2006 elections, and then you you move toward the surge. And when you when you when you discuss the surge, I think you make a number of important points about how it wasn't popular among many military leaders, uh, and it had to come. No, no, not at all. Yeah, and it had to. You know, Bush had to make the decision after consulting with a wide variety of people, and also when when you when I like like you to say talk about the surge, but. When you when you raise the issue, you, you know uh, it also involves grappling with uh, General Petraeus and kind of where he fits into sure. into uh, the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. Well, well, the surge in General Petraeus really, you know, he's he is the the mind behind the surge. He's the one senior military guy on active duty who strongly argued for a surge. Most of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the service chiefs, the theater commanders, the field commanders, all to a man said, don't surge. We got what we got. Let's ride it out. You know, we'll, we'll, the Iraqis are either going to make it or not going to make it. Don't double down on this deal. Petraeus was one of the guys who said, no, you need to send in more U.S. troops as a signal of resolve. We need to gain some control over Baghdad. We need to, to tamp down this insurgency and give the Iraqis a chance to get themselves together. And, and that was done. And he, he was, you know, as the British would say, he was the man of the match. He was the guy who went in and pulled that all off. The challenge was, of course, the surge was temporary by its nature. A surge is like a wave coming up on the beach. It's going to wash out. Well, back to one of our main problems. Who's the enemy and what happens next? We didn't think through what would happen when the United States began to wash out. What happens to our new Sawa allies, our Sunni allies, when they realize the Americans are leaving? What happens to the enemy when they realize the Americans are leaving? Who fills this vacuum? Is the Iraqi government ready to fill this vacuum? The answer, no, as we've seen with the rise of ISIS. All ISIS is, when they came in, it's the old Sunni insurgency. It's the same guys. And I mean, in many cases, in the cases like Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, he's literally the same guy we were chasing around in the you know, 2010-11 period. So um, this the surge gets a lot of, you know, it, it, it works in a temporary sense. But it's it's you know it is strictly that a temporary surge and Petraeus will will then step up to the the old Tommy Franks job central command where he sees both Afghanistan and Iraq under his command. Uh, a guy named General Stan McChrystal will lead the surge in Afghanistan, but it, it is Petraeus who comes in and has to carry that out as the Afghan commander after McChrystal's relief for saying some intemperate things to a Rolling Stone reporter. Um, yeah, I, want, I definitely want to talk Petraeus, about that. Yeah. Yeah, Petraeus is the guy. He's the dominant figure. But he's a very controversial figure in the U.S. military. I can tell you that. He is uh, He's an exceedingly ambitious guy. He's very able and capable, but you always wonder, you know, whose agenda is being used here. True, true. And you, and you, you bring that uh, ambivalence out very well um, about his position, um, you know, of being kind. Yeah, of- but we have to give him. 
credit for what he accomplished. I mean, oh, he oh, was no, a no. commander at a time of some accomplishment. No doubt. Uh, and he was treated pretty unfairly by a lot of anti-war groups, I would, I would throw in there. Oh, yeah, horribly, horribly. Yes. When he went to testify in Congress, uh, MoveOn.org in particular ran a big ad that, that did a pun on his name and said, General, betray us. Yeah. And, I mean, that was just way out of bounds. I mean, he was coming to testify for Congress. You could agree or disagree with the policy, but that guy is not a treasonous guy. And, no. and to suggest that is terrible. Yeah. So as far as, you know, as, as events uh, unwind in Iraq, 2008, 2009 into 2010, I was wondering if you could kind of, you know, say something about the Iraqi government that we were, you know, leaving behind to pick up the, you know, pick up the ball, as it were, and, you know, create a functioning country, especially Prime Minister Maliki. Uh, you say a lot about him well, in the book. Um, yeah, Nuri al-Maliki is unfortunately in the long line of, of bad apples that the United States has picked up. I mean, you could go to Nguyen Van Thu in South Vietnam, the Somoza family in Nicaragua, the Ramos family in the Philippines, you know, the, uh, you know, Karzai in Afghanistan was of the same ilk. He was, you know, the classic, he's an SOB, but he's our SOB type guy. He was um, strongly affiliated with the Iranians, um, really had no time for the Salah, the Sunni, Sunni Arabs. You know, one of the things was the Sunni Arabs had come in thinking they'd get a role in the government. Now, you know, they'd been disenfranchised by Bremer during the occupation period early on. And they thought, oh, this guy Maliki will let us get in and we can vote. And we can elect people and we can have a role in the government. Nope. Maliki was all about taking care of his Shia buddies. And, yeah. uh, he, he basically manufactured a result of it with our looking aside in the 2010 election, which he did not win. In fact, he came in second in that election. We looked aside as he, he's, he changed the results, did recounts, you know, worthy of anything that happened in Florida in 2000. And, uh, and, uh, basically reinstalled himself as prime minister. He was about to do it a third time this year, but President Obama and everybody finally just said enough is enough. You know, you do it one more time. That's it. You know, you were pulling everything and you're on your own. And the, um, his Dawah party wised up, and that's why he got Haider al in there right now, because they realized another go-around with Maliki wasn't going to work. But he's a very, very shady, self-serving guy. Bad news. True. Um, that's that's my read of it, too. Um, and I think it's a good uh, time to transition to the final part of your book where you deal with uh, the war in Afghanistan. And a, a couple of things caught my attention in this, in this section, especially – uh, you know, you, you go through the, the military operations and battles and, you know, uh, you know, uh, fighting in places like I, I, don't know if, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right. Barji Matal in the Nuristan province. Yeah, Barji Matal. Yes. Yeah, up in the mountains. Yes. And, in, and Marja, an operation, Mamashtra. Yep, down in the southwest. Yep, um, down in the southwest. Yes. What, what struck me about this is. It, 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 I, I kind of picked this up, but not uh, not as much as when, after I read or as I should have before reading the book is how much restraint that the United States military forces used in exercising firepower, especially under McChrystal. Um, yeah. Um, well, McChrystal. Yeah. I mean, that lot lives were very... lost and people realized this. Um, and it, he, you know, he went he went on that one mission. um uh, I can't remember where exactly it was. He went out with that with that uh, with that unit where one of the the staff sergeants. Yeah, west had, of Kandahar. Yes, west yeah. of Kandahar, and uh, so that that struck me that you know the the because you you get a feel for this in other in other books about all the kind of paperwork and bureaucracy. If you thought you know there were there were Taliban members and you wanted to get permission to have an airstrike or artillery, if there was any chance of civilian deaths, that was not approved. 
at one point you have to like literally soldiers were told not to initiate fire if they thought there was any chance of civilian casualties. Um, yeah, I mean, it was crazy. I mean, I, look, I don't, I don't, I don't want to kill civilians ever. You yeah. know? And, uh, but you gotta, you gotta be reasonable about this. Uh, I talked to plenty of Afghan civilians and they would tell you, they knew it was a war. The Taliban intentionally entrenched themselves in villages. They yeah. did that on purpose. Um, when we disarmed ourselves by saying, oh, we won't do this, you know, to me, one of the basic military principles is you've got to trust the person on the ground. You know, General Stan McChrystal, who is a, a great hero, and, and, and he's the unsung hero of the war because he's the guy who trained our special ops how to do manhunting. When they get bin Laden, those are the techniques that McChrystal devised when he was in charge of the special forces. But when he comes to be the conventional commander in Afghanistan, I think he forgot that he wasn't with special forces anymore, who have excellent intel and who always have good target data and who always have the, the top equipment and the top training and stuff. Now he's dealing with a large number of, of forces that are spread out across the whole country and don't always have great intel. And, um, and the old rule is you, you trust the person on the ground. And to me, what another way to approach it, rather than issue all these top-down orders, you know, saying you can't do this, you got to do this, you got to check with dad to do this, this, and this, you know, <laughs> shoot artillery, fly an airstrike, go into a village or whatever, a better solution would have been to give intent and say, hey, my intention is to limit civilian casualties. You guys do your best. And if you have a subordinate commander who doesn't get it, you get a new subordinate commander. The military allows you to replace commanders who, who don't follow, you know, those those um, approaches. In Iraq, we never, you know, we also worked among a civil population, and we never had those kind of restraints. But I was amazed when, you know, we started dealing with Afghanistan, but what we had done to ourselves, we thought we were making Karzai happy because he would, complain about all this kind of stuff. Karzai, of course, a guy who also stole an election in 2009, one he did not win, that we looked the other way while he stuffed the ballot box and stole that one. But we, we gave him way too much credence. I mean, the average Afghan that I talked to, the, the, the village elders and, and, and imams and stuff, when I talked to them, they say, hey, it's a war. We understand. You know, we'd rather have you go after the Taliban. We realize you're going to be as careful as you can. But, you know, they also realized that the nature of that type of war, there were going to be civilians killed. And the Taliban killed more of them than we did. But, you know, they weren't apologizing. No, those weren't the images on Al Jazeera and other, I mean, even Western news outlets, uh, you know, certainly. Well, and it goes, yes, it goes back to, did we think through how we present the, the narrative yeah. of our war? We did not. Mm -hmm. Instead, we just, we didn't give that much thought at all. In the case of our enemies, though, the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, the Sunni insurgents in Iraq, they thought about that first. Before they even mounted an operation, they thought about how will this be portrayed? Because for them, they had to get the imagery right or they would not get recruits and money to keep their movement going. Yeah, absolutely. And another thing that comes through in your analysis, um, I mean, it's, it's, it's great stuff to read um, uh, about the, the reparations game and how, uh, you know, the issue oh. of civilian casualties would, you know, some turn into apologies that Karzai showed no appreciation for in general. Um, and then, you know, the, the money that would be taken, especially from America's allies in the war. And it just kind of this, this cycle of, you know, civilian casualties, maybe some were true, some were not and money being taken and false reports. I wonder if you could, you know, add some details to that. Sure. Well, I mean, basically the United States, um, the, the tradition in the Pashtun code, the, the Pashtun people, Karzai was a Pashtun, um, they're about 40% of the Afghan population, but they have a code called Pashtun Wali. And like many peoples in the world have, they had the idea of blood money, that if someone was killed by accident, you know, not a murder, not, not intentional, but if someone was killed by accident, you know, um, 
and that would include a bomb that dropped off target or, or a person shot by a stray round or something, you owed their family blood money. And that would then ensure there was no feud that would go on for generations. And so the United States accepted this and, and paid what they called, um, you know, a salation payment or a, um, or a compensation payment if someone was killed, reparations, if you will. And, and we would come in and pay a certain amount if, you know, if someone was killed. We would even pay if their livestock was killed or their house was damaged, all these different things. And our local commanders had various degrees of authority to pay certain amounts of money. Um, but what began to happen, and you sure can't blame the Afghans for this. I mean, it's the fourth poorest country in the world. Um, they began to see this as a bit of a racket. So whenever there'd be an Allied operation in their area, uh, they would show up the next day at the at the U.S. camp, and they'd say, well, you know, three goats were killed, and also my daughter, I would like X thousand dollars. And and you were in a position, you know, how much are you going to investigate that? Well, you could go down in the village, but that means mountain patrol, potentially getting shot up, all that kind of stuff. Or you could just take the guy and pay it. Well, we're a rich country. We mostly paid it. And it got kind of crazy because Karzai then would insist on a public apology by our field commander, you know, in that case, General McChrystal, later General Allen, later General Dunford, now General Campbell. You know, they'd insist on a public apology for some of these incidents. And then they would they would also stick their hand out for money at each of the echelons of government. And what also began to happen, the Taliban not being stupid, you know, they all wear civilian clothes. So guess what they started doing? They started reporting yeah. their casualties. And because we didn't want to investigate or cause a stink or make a big deal, we ended up paying the death gratuities to the Taliban as well <laughs> in some cases. And, and I mean, okay, you know, the Taliban's got to be happy now because if you got your opponent basically paying your, um, you're paying off your life insurance for you, I mean, you can't beat that. Yeah, that's not a bad policy at all. And it, it reminds me I, uh, of another issue that you do a great job of, of drawing attention to. It's the, the, the prisoners that were uh, the U.S. and other the, their allies would capture and hand over to Afghans, and they would you know, go through oh, the yeah. prisons very quickly. And sometimes, if, if, if I remember one part of the book correctly, it was they'd go before uh, essentially judges or some type of tribunal and would say something like, I promise not to kill people anymore, and they would just be let off, and you'd see them you know, fighting you know, very soon after that. Yeah, but our troops called it catch and release, you know, yes. like with fish. And um, but what what they would do, they would actually go into the the, the Islamic, you know, the uh, court for the government of the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan, and they would say, hey, I guess I did kill people, but I only killed the Americans and their infidels. And they'd say, well, that's fine. As long as you don't kill any Afghans, okay, I'll go. You know? <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, and to us, we would say, you got to be crazy. We were paying for that court. And yet, you know, that's what they were delivering. I mean, and the very idea that that. You know, Afghanistan is a country that has 85% adult illiteracy. The idea that, that these guys, a few years after, you know, we've come in there, somehow can run a court system and stuff. I mean, we were very overly ambitious thinking that could happen and we'd get any other result than that. But uh, but it definitely didn't work in our favor. Yeah, and that's your your point, Ray, is, an, is an, a good segue to uh, where you kind of go with your analysis of Afghanistan. I mean, you certainly, I, I'm not going to draw that much attention to the interview, but it's an, a very interesting read on far the effects of warfare on the U.S. soldiers kind of being out there in the heat, you know, far away from civilization. Some of the, you refer to it as uh, Le Cafard, you kind of compare it to the French legionaries. And uh, yeah, that's yeah. very, that's very, you well, know, I mean, gut-wrenching reading. We steer. Yeah, we see it, you know, we see it with the veterans. I mean, the reason wars like Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan breed a lot of um, psychological and psychiatric problems is you've asked a young man or woman, you know, at age 18 to 22, to carry a weapon, go into a village, and try and sort out which guy's a farmer and which guy's a terrorist when they're all dressed alike, they all talk alike. And basically, 
you're fighting this war essentially in people's homes. You're fighting among their children. You're fighting among their personal belongings. You know, their their bedding, their 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 toys, all that. Kind of, I mean, that's a that's a wrenching way to fight. I mean, all war is difficult, but that type of war is particularly hard. And so you spend a lot of time after it's over thinking, did I shoot the right guy? Did I shoot the wrong guy? You don't know because you mm-hmm. don't speak their language, and if they're dead, they can't tell you. Yeah, it's 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 horrible. I mean, I had a. Uh, in a, a semi incident when I was teaching a class on the Vietnam War, and I didn't really think about it. Um, I had a student who was uh, from uh, a veteran from the Iraq War. I can't remember where he was stationed, but uh, I started showing pictures of some battles, some search and destroy missions, and he just sure. he just lost it. And I didn't. I, I felt so bad about it, but I didn't even think about it. And your book reminded me of like the psychological scars of, of such a. You know, he's probably twenty two years old, twenty three years old. Uh, and it certainly was, you know, an eye opener for me. Something I should have been more sensitive to before I uh, you know, yeah. showed these well, clips. Yeah, I've class. definitely learned it. My yeah, I've learned it myself, and my family definitely knows it. I mean, there's some stuff with me that they, you know, they just they don't want me to look at. Let's put it that way. And, sure. uh, and I and I'm an older guy who had a lot more experience than these these very young privates and corporals who were yeah. in there. So it is it is it's very wrenching. It's very emotional. I mean, you're you're losing people. You're killing people. And both of those things are very corrosive. And and over time, if you don't talk about it, and you don't think about it, um, it'll, it'll eat you up. Yes, de- definitely. And um, another, like, if, when you when you see how, how the, the the part three unfolds, it, you raise a number of issues that kind of get to the core of the book, as far as who is the enemy and how do you measure success as part of this, and what it, what strikes me about the stuff. Uh, uh, about your your analysis of the of war in Afghanistan is how it switched to you know a war of attrition as the measure of progress. Uh, you know, wow. You've got you've got all these other things going on with nation building, and you know you talk about General Allen with his you know with his presentations, you know going through all sorts of statistics for progress. But at the end of the day, you know the, the even the surge that the Obama administration you know uh, agrees to at the it boiled down to is just a simple war of attrition, biding time until. U.S. troops could get out. And I guess my, my, my question yeah. is, you know, at the end of the day, how, you know, what went right and what went wrong with, you know, how the U.S. approached the war in Afghanistan? Well, there's, uh, in my view, um, you're right about the war of attrition in numbers. Um, there's an old, you know, thing they say when you deal with data, and that's garbage in, garbage out. <laughs> the, the, the really important numbers that you really wanted from Afghanistan would have come from the villagers and the enemy, and they didn't provide numbers. So everything was was painted or skewed towards what the Americans thought was happening. And it's very, very risky in this type of war to sit in the headquarters and look at numbers and think you're really seeing anything. You've got to get out on the ground and look around. And and when you do, you see uh, quite a different and more sobering view than, than whatever the numbers may say. Um, you know, what went right, what went wrong? What went right, I think, is that, you know, we, we got a, our, our military into both countries, both Iraq and Afghanistan, and did well in the initial operation and knocked out those enemy governments, you know, cleaned out al-Qaeda very quickly in Afghanistan. We did that, and that was done effectively by December of one and was done effectively by about April or May of three in Iraq. That's what our military is good at, is that kind of an operation, a rapid, decisive operation, you know, a, a fairly inventive one using special ops and air power in, in Afghanistan, a version of Desert Storm with tanks and everything in Iraq. It's when we stayed after that that we went wrong. We didn't think through, okay, who do we hand this off to, and what are we willing to accept as an outcome? Well, since we didn't work that through, we left our people there. 
And as we left our people there, suddenly insurgencies pop up in both countries very rapidly in Iraq. And then over time, the Taliban reinserted themselves in Afghanistan. And in both cases, we were now in an insurgency. The military understood that. That's why, you know, you have the surge. You have guys like General Petraeus who, you know, introduced some ideas of counterinsurgency theory that go back, you know, not even just to Vietnam, but go way back in history, you know, back to even, you know, stuff that was done um, in the Philippines in the early 1900s, all that kind of stuff. Well, great. But, you know, do we ever have the discussion? We do not. With the American people, with their elected and appointed representatives that says, hey, once you've accepted counterinsurgency in these countries led by Americans, you've just signed on for a 50-year war. Are you guys okay with that? That discussion was never had. No. And, of course, the reality was neither the Bush administration nor the Obama administration was okay with that. Very important to note that the agreement to withdraw from Iraq, they beat up the current president a lot over that, but the agreement to withdraw from Iraq was signed in December 2008 by our ambassador, Ambassador Ryan Crocker, good guy, great diplomat, also wrote a similar agreement with the Karzai government in Afghanistan and copied it almost word for word from the Iraq one. But the title of that agreement from 08 was the agreement on the withdrawal of U.S. forces from Iraq. And, uh, you know, to then somehow imply, well, when we pulled everybody out in 2011, you know, this was a big awakening. It's like that was the plan from the previous administration. Because neither administration wanted to sign up for, for a 50 years war. You raise an interesting point, and kind of once it also gets to the heart of your book. Um, you know, I've read you did a, a piece in uh, an op-ed piece in the New York Times and some other forums where you're very hard on the military leadership as far as the advice and recommendations that they gave civilian authorities. I mean, the stereotypical yeah. view of war in the military is, you know, go back to Vietnam or Korea that, you know, if only the short-sighted politicians would let the military do what it does, we wouldn't have these problems. But you take a much different view in the book. And I was wondering if you could just elaborate. Oh, well, I'm a military yeah. uh, Christian, I'm a military guy, and I know what advice we gave them. They basically followed a lot of our advice. Okay. I mean, I mentioned in the surge, a large number of people were against it. But General David Petraeus, who's a senior commander, he was for it. So it was a retired general named General Jack Keene, Vietnam veteran, also a very articulate guy who'd been the vice chief of staff, the second in charge of the army at the start of the war. I mean, there were several guys who, who advocated for the surge. You know, the point that I'm getting at is the military advice that was given was followed for the most part. It was bad advice. <laughs> you know, what we didn't have was that discussion where we say, how long are you willing to stay in these countries? Mm-hmm. How much, how much, how many resources do you want to commit? Do you understand that if you leave Americans as the preeminent force in both Iraq and Afghanistan, you're going to have a hundred thousand of us there for 20 or 30 years. Is that okay with you? Or do you want us to come up with an alternate plan? Interestingly enough, the U.S. military never came up with an alternate strategy to that basic village counterinsurgency. There were other alternatives. We could have withdrawn our forces. We could have gone to a, a situation where we, we put more of them in charge, uh, like the Vietnamization program in South Vietnam. It did not work, but it was a, a plan. We could have gone to what uh, Vice President Biden suggested, which was a special operations-focused uh, you know, counterterrorism mission in, in either country. Um, Vice President Biden, I might ask you, and also note that he and Leslie Gelb, when, when Biden was a senator, came up with an idea of maybe splitting Iraq into three parts, like the, the Ottomans had done, have a Kurdish part, Sunni part, Shia part. Those kind of alternate strategies were, were not, not proposed. Instead, the military essentially gave the following options to the senior leadership. You can send less troops, the same number of troops, or more troops. I mean, that's not really an option. That's, you know, we've agreed that we're going to follow this flawed strategy, and your only choice is how much are you going to follow it. Yeah. I mean, that's not really very good military advice. No. 
And, and we go to war colleges and stuff to learn better than that. I mean, I know I know better than that. But really, in a way, Christian, we're, we, were big, we were undone by our own early success. Because we done, did well, unexpectedly well in both countries at the start of the war, and because we have a great all-volunteer military, wonderful young men and women who are very capable and are willing to try whatever we give them, we actually thought, well, you know, these, our military is so good now, maybe we can pull off this Vietnam thing, and this time it'll work out. And that was tremendously short-sighted. Yeah, and you, and you, you make that case uh, very effectively. And uh, I guess as a way, I mean, I've taken so much of your time today with this interview, but uh, it, I think it's a good point to talk about what lessons we've learned, unlearned about, you know, warfare based on, um, you know, our experience in Iraq and Afghanistan and what our how we should, you know, use military forces and organize military forces for the threats we face as diverse as ISIS or ISIL uh, in the Middle East or convention, more conventional threats like, say, Russia or possibly even China. Right. Or, you know, North Korea. There's, yes. There's, there's yes. plenty of them. Yeah. Oh, yes, there are. Um, I think what we, to, yeah, what we need to recognize is what our military is good at and what we're not good at. The U.S. military is real good at a short, decisive operation against the conventional enemy. You put us head-to-head against against guys who have tanks and artillery and jet fighters and submarines and all that, we'll, we'll clean them up every time. And we work hard at that. We train hard at that. It's not cheap. We have good weapons, uh, excellent training and education, and highly selected and trained young men and women who do that stuff. So we're good at that. Um, if And we will. Our enemy knows that. So that's why they choose to confront us with these, these irregular forces, with people like ISIS and stuff like that. If we're going to go against them, we sort of got to swallow hard and we got to really look at our other options. Um, one option is to do nothing. And sometimes that, that's really hard for a superpower, but sometimes you got to step back and just say, hey, I can't fix this. It's, it's, you know, it's your, it's your thing. You're going to have to do it. Another, which is what President Obama and his administration have adopted in Iraq and Syria, is to give limited support carefully limited support to the local forces, in this case, the Iraqis, and if we can never find any moderate Syrians, and they would, uh, and they would um, carry the, the weight of the battle on the ground. We'd supply some airstrikes, some intel, some training and, and advice, and, and maybe some supplies. Um, that's a long, long, frustrating strategy of containment, but it's certainly preferable to 100,000 Americans on the ground, because you start putting 100,000 Americans on the ground, the clock starts running, and people, the American people rightly expect a, a result from that. Um, and, and so those are some of the initial lessons from a military perspective. It does look like the military is, you know, is figuring that out. But, you know, we'll see. It remains to be seen how things go in Iraq. And, and I, I do think that when spring comes in Afghanistan, we're going to be in a crisis there as well, because the Taliban is quite resurgent. And once the weather breaks, they'll be back on the battlefield and active. And there's so many unknowables about Afghanistan with uh, Karzai, you know, uh, going out of office and what what's going to happen. Um, in the recent foreign affairs issue, there some of the articles, I won't name names, seem uh, they're very for lack of a better term, hopeful about the future of Afghanistan in terms of development of civil society and the, that the, the Taliban won't, you know, be a long-term threat in the sense that it's going to, you know, topple oh, really? the entire country. Yeah. It's, it's not like, you know, roses, you know, fields of poppy, or that was a bad way of putting it, seeds or fields well, of poppy. There's plenty of fields of poppy. Yes, I meant fields of roses with people galloping and skipping, but they seem to think that, you know, it's it's generally in the going in the right direction. I don't know if... Um, if it sounds a little rosy absolutely, to me. Absolutely crazy to think that. I mean, look at the history of that country. It is one of the most unhappy places in the world. 
never centrally covered with any effect from Kabul. The best you ever had was a figurehead there yeah. during the, you know, the Kings of Hira or something like that. I mean, look, part of it is they're all enthralled with Ashraf Ghani Ahmadzai because he speaks good English and, and taught at Berkeley and went to Columbia and everything. Look, Ghani's a, a good guy. He's a nice guy and everything. But, you know, he's going to go his own route. And, um, you know, the fact that he seems westernized is something I might add was what was Karzai's strength when we put him forward. Well, it's, you know, let's see what Ghani does once the spring comes and the Taliban are active in the southeast. You know, then we'll see how this government hangs together. I, I'm not optimistic because, you know, the Taliban are out there and these guys don't have any capability to get rid of. Yeah. And would, another thing you raise a point, and I, I'm once again, I'm taking a lot of your time, but I, there's so much fascinating stuff in this book is this idea of winning hearts and minds. And how do you win hearts and minds if you don't really know what the people think? Uh, one of the points in your book about judging progress against the Taliban and in the hearts and minds of the people in Afghanistan is if you don't speak the language, you don't know the customs, the warfare is hard. I mean, how do you win the hearts and minds if you can't, you know, you, you have this great section of the book where you talk about, and I reread it before the interview, about just talking, sending people in, even people, you know, native uh, uh, Afghanistan, uh, you know, interpreter not interpreters, but poll takers who, you know, essentially ask right. questions about the future and they don't even understand. They tend to give answers that they think the poll people want to hear. And whether they may not believe it or not, they may say everything's good and then, you know, actually have links to the Taliban. And how do you how do you sure. get around that basic problem, winning the hearts and minds? I don't know what the answer is to that. Well, I, I, I personally think for an outsider like the Americans, um, the only way we're going to win hearts and minds in these countries is to be temporary, to be um, to be in support rather than in the lead. To, you know, to assist them in the areas we can, but to understand it's got to be their solution. Uh, Nobody in no country, whether the United States or anything, likes some foreign guy coming in and telling them how to do stuff, even when they come with resources. And I think that's the challenge in Afghanistan. You have a village culture that's existed yeah. for centuries, and you know a bunch of Americans showing up with a big bag of money and the ability to dig a well or build a school. You know that that doesn't necessarily help with what they want. You know, rather than me showing up with the money and saying, "Hey, I'm going to dig you well, I'm going to build you a school," think of it if we showed up instead and say, "What do you want?" What would you like done? And, and how, how, can, how can I help you guys with what you might want? Because they might turn to you and say, we're not interested at all in education, but we'd like something to deal with this disease that's afflicting our sheep, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and, and so that's the way to do it. And, and to understand that, that the Afghan government itself has to win the hearts and minds. We, you know, in some ways, we displaced the governments of Afghanistan and Iraq. We certainly did with the Sawa in Iraq to where the locals were trusting us more than their own government. Well, the problem is when you then pull out the Americans, they don't trust their government. And that means open season for the insurgents because they can come in and fill that gap. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it's, 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 it's difficult questions. Um, and once again, uh, you know, thank you for taking so much time to speak with me about your book. And in conclusion, I was wondering if you could tell the listeners about what your future plans might be uh, as far as um, scholarship or teaching or any other endeavors? Well, um, yeah, I'm, I'm fortunate to be here at North Carolina State University in the center of the research triangle. So we have Duke, United, uh, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, all those. And um, we do a lot of, of, of things here, seminars that affect all three of those major universities and several other colleges in the region. So my goal is to, to keep working with students and keep the discussion going. And then as far as future research, um, you know, I, I want to continue to write. I think I'm going to move past this current war. I, you know, I thought about it and I need to give it a break for a little bit. And 
maybe go back a little bit further into the past and, and look at some other things in, in history. But I think I'll definitely, I'll stay on the military angle. I've spent most of my life doing that. And, uh, and there's always more to learn about, about people and, and, you know, why they fight and, uh, and, and what they can, what they can do maybe to prevent it. Yeah, true. That is, um, it's an, it's an interesting way of putting it. Um, uh, I talked with, uh, I did an interview a couple weeks ago with Henry Arnault from George Washington, a poly scientist, and he talked a lot about kind of, you know, a, a line of scholarship of trying to figure out, you know, how ideas constrain how we behave or how we don't behave and how we kind of look at, uh, uh, essentially, we look at courses of action based on the assumptions that we have and how that influence potentially influences war and peace. Because I think a lot of the times when American policymakers and get into war, war, peace issues, there's some assumptions they're kind of what they see as you know legitimate or non-legitimate definitely color it anywhere from lyndon johnson to george bush to the advice that military policymakers uh give certainly there's kind of a, a frame of reference when you have certain assumptions that leaves out you know courses of action that could perhaps produce different results so that is an interesting topic yeah, to think cool. about so uh general general bolger thank you for uh speaking with me uh it's been a pleasure and i would recommend uh, you know everyone to read this book um it's uh, it's a longer book, uh, obviously, but it, it's a quick it's a quick read. It's very straightforward. It's well written. I found myself not being able to put it down when I probably should have been spending more time grading uh, student uh, papers a little quicker than I I you know probably did. But uh, yes, it's it's a, it's an excellent work, and uh, I wish you the best of luck in the future. Well, thanks very much. Thank you. You have been listening to Christian Peterson interview General Daniel Bolger on New Books and World Affairs. We hope you drop by in the near future. Have an excellent day.